0: For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. Yeah, so we're in the second half of Romans 7 talking about the war within. And um, I thought, you know, with the the disconnectedness of the series and and the switch with me and Ben, you know, it it would behoove us to just kind of put this in its its right context, the right mindset here. Um, The second half or the second part of Romans chapters five through eight are really all about this idea that God has freed us from the power of sin. Okay. Romans one through four is about being freed from the penalty of sin. How Jesus died uh, to pay for our sins so that we could not be under the judgment of God. This section is talking about how we can walk with him, how we can let the power of God come into our lives and it can cause real, meaningful, sustained change. That we can become more loving people, more patient people, kinder people, more merciful people by the power of God because of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. He can come into our lives and really change us. And that that's what he wants to do. But in order for that to happen, we have to understand the depths of exactly what he has done when he says that he died for us on the cross. In chapter 6, it was all about uh, understanding our relationship, how we are freed from the power of sin uh, through understanding the issue of identity. Identity is such a powerful thing. It's just the simple question of how do you see yourself? who are you in your own mind's eye? That question has a lot to do with why you do the things that you do. The value that you think that you have, the place, the role, the purpose, who are you really informs the decision-making process in your life. And God was saying, when you came, when you received Jesus Christ by faith into your life, you die and you get a new identity a new self given to you by him. He says you're no longer in Adam but in Christ, meaning you get a whole new identity. God isn't doing a renovation project where he's going to strip you down to the boards and put something else back down. He knocks the whole building down and starts from scratch on the foundation of Jesus Christ. That is how we understand freedom from the power of sin, that we are no longer slaves to sin, that we still struggle with sin, but it no longer has this slave-master relationship with us where we are dragged almost unwillingly towards rebellion. We still have a desire to rebel, but we have the power of God, of the spirit of God in our lives to help us choose good to choose God's way. He also talked about it in chapter six through the lens of understanding the true nature of sin. We have to understand our true nature, our identity in Christ, but we also have to understand what sin really is because we tend to think of sin as that's the stuff that's fun, right? You know? And God, he doesn't want us to sin because God hates fun but that's not the case at all. Sin leads to death. When we talk about sin, we're talking about things that the the architect of the human, of the whole human experience, the body, mind, and soul of the human being, the one who put that together very strategically and very purposefully, the all-powerful God of the universe, created us for a reason, and when we violate God's purpose for us and we go against God's character, it causes us and others pain. It causes uh, loss. It causes fear. It causes hatred. It causes selfishness. The problem, the fundamental problem with sin is not that it's fun. It's that it kills you. It leads to death, destruction, and meaninglessness. And we talked about the economy of diminishing returns with all sin, all rebellion. It starts that no one wakes up one day and says, you know, I want to be a heroin addict, right? You start making small incremental decisions along the way that lead you to a place that you never believed you could have, you could have come. When you have that moment where you're like, how did my life get like this? Who am I? Who is this person that I see doing these things. That's not who I am. You're reflecting on the economy of diminishing returns. You've headed down a path of rebellion against God, and you've wound up far from him and in pain. And it's not just about giving up sin either. It's about allowing sin to be replaced by something else. We are not, as Christians, defined by what we do. And we are not, as Christians, saying that the ultimate thing, you know, the the ultimate expression of, of your faith is to stop sinning. No. It's so much more than that. It's so much more. But we have to understand sin in its proper context in order to be released from its power in our lives. Last time, Ben was talking to you guys about the first half of seven So Paul is moving through this argument, and he's talking about now how understanding our relationships, our relationship to God's law has changed. And we talked about what God's law is. It's the character of God. It's the nature of God. And when you think about what is the nature of, of God and the nature of God's law, our relationship to it matters very much. How when we're born, when we were first created, Adam and Eve in the garden, they were created in harmony with God. And so the law of God, the character of God, served as a loving guide for them to understand what was good and what was right and what was true. But when man rebelled against God and our nature changed, we had a fundamental change at the very core of who we are. And we we received in brokenness what the Bible calls a sin nature that our relationship to the law changed. And so the law is good. The law is beautiful, the law is perfect, the law is wonderful. And the way we were designed by God, we had a perfect relationship to the law. But when we fell, the law didn't change, we did. It's sort of like salt, salt is good. Salt tastes good, it makes your food taste better. You need a certain amount of salt or you would die, right? Depending on your nature. If your nature changed, your relationship to salt might change, right? And that's essentially what the Bible is saying about God's law here in chapter 7. It's saying the law is good, it's never changed, and it's always good. But as our nature has changed, the effects on the law on us have changed. And if we want to be freed from the power of sin in our lives, we have to understand that we have been brought out from under the law of God through the death of Jesus Christ. And so that was what we spent a lot of time explaining, that this purpose of the law, that when we talk about the law, we're talking about the commandments of God. And the purpose of the law is to show us who God is, to reveal the greatness of God's character, that he is loving, he is merciful, he is just. And what does it look like for us to be loving and merciful and just? It shows us, as we study the way that God wants us to live our lives, it shows us who he created us to be. We are image bearers, it says. Created in the image of God himself for the purpose of reflecting his greatness into the world. And so... As we come to understand him more and more through the law, we come to understand the true purpose of how it is we were intended to be through that study of the law. The law also shows us how broken we are, how that sin nature has twisted us, and how far we are as we come up against and look at the perfect God, who is all-loving, all-merciful, all-just, all-righteous, who is complete and full and perfect in every way, when we are confronted with that as broken, fallen human beings, it reveals to us our problems and how far we fall short of what it is that we were made to be. The law's purpose was to show us how badly we need a Savior, to bring us to the end of ourselves, saying, I am so far from what God can accept, I am so far from what God intended, and I am so far from what God designed me to be, I cannot fix myself. That's the purpose of the law. And so the law has limitations. With that, in mind, that that's what it's here to do, the law can show us that we need change. It's a, it's a diagnostic tool that reveals the disease, but it doesn't cure anything. It doesn't change you. It just reveals what needs to change. Wearsby, in his commentary on Romans 7, says this, Every growing Christian understands the experience of Romans 6 and 7. Once we learn how to know, reckon, and yield, we start getting victory over the habits of the flesh. We feel we are becoming more spiritual. We set high standards and ideals for ourselves, and for a while, we seem to attain them. Then everything collapses. We start to see deeper into our own hearts, and we discover sins that we did not even know were there. God's holy law takes on a new power, and we wonder if we can ever do anything good. Without realizing it, we have moved into legalism and have learned the truth about sin, the law, and ourselves. And that's what we're talking about. We're talking about that universally Christian experience of coming into a relationship with God, beginning to understand what right and wrong are, beginning to be filled and motivated by the love and power of God in our lives, getting to the point where we feel like, man, I really can change and my life is really gonna be different now, and then it hits the fan. Because we've begun to put confidence in ourselves and we've begun to move away from what we were designed for, which is dependence on God. He starts in chapter 7, verse 14, and he says, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold into bondage to sin. So what he's saying is the law is spiritual meaning that it's from God, it's good, and it's different from us. The law deals with the inner workings, not just the outward appearances. That it's an issue of what's going on in your heart, not just a question of what do you do, but why do you do it, and who are you? It goes down to that issue of identity. The law is spiritual, he says, but I am of the flesh, sold into bondage to sin. First Samuel 16, 7 says, But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For God sees not as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. That's how God operates, is not just on the surface of outward behavior, but deep into the spiritual matters of who we are. So he's saying there's this comparison. The law is spiritual, but we are carnal. He's saying, you know, we have this flesh nature. We want to be like God. We want to rebel against God. We want to be selfish, and we want our own way. And that is the fleshly carnal nature of who we are so the law on the one hand is spiritual we on the other hand have this carnal component to who we are and this sets a battleground in each and every one of us as followers of Jesus Christ there is going to be an ongoing war between the spirit and the flesh Galatians 5.17 says, For the flesh sets its desire against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh, for these are in opposition to one another so that you may not do the things that you please. Now, let's just stop for a moment and recognize how brilliant this is. This is a brilliant description of your inner workings. How do I know that? because it's a brilliant description of my inner workings. We are all born into this conflict. The Bible's answer for this is unique among all institutions, religions, and philosophies. Why am I so conflicted within myself? Why do I want to do good and always fall short of what it is that I wanna do? Because there's a spiritual component to you and a carnal component to you because you were destined and made for glory as an image bearer of the creator God, and you are broken and fallen and not what you were intended to be. That is what we're looking at here in this description as God gets ready to answer the question to us, how can real change happen in my life? How can real change sustained, be sustained and lasting? How can I become a more loving person, not just seem like a more loving person, but become a more loving person? We have to understand this conflict that goes down into the very nature of who we are. We all have areas where we want to improve. We all have areas where we want to change. Patience, self-control, kindness. We, some of us would like to be more confident. Some of us would like to be more forgiving. Not many of us, but some, right? We have these things, these understandings. We see these qualities in others. We know it's possible for humans to be extraordinary in these ways. And we see that and we say, well, what about me? I want to be more loving. I want to be more patient with people. I want to be more kind. We have those things. We have those desires, and we can see them. Why can't we just choose? Are we not in control of our faculties? Are we not capable of deciding our own behaviors? Why would there be any conflict at all? We've all experienced the utter frustration of knowing what we want knowing how we want to be, desiring to be that way, and knowing what is right, and yet always falling short. And we all know this. We all experience this. This is human. This is actually the experience of the good guys. The people who want good things experience this failure. The alternative is just to not care and not want to do anything good. But those are the options in front of us, to want to be good and fail or to not want to be good at all? How did that happen? How do we get off that? Is is there a third choice? Well, Paul explains this very well here in 7, 15 through 20. He says, for what I am doing, I do not understand, for I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I'm doing the very thing that I hate. But if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. So now, no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of good is not. For the good that I want, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. But if I am doing the very thing I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. I think every one of us can read through that and say, wow, that's me. I've had that experience so many times in my life. I know how I want to be. I don't want to be the way that I am. I want to be different, and I know what's right. Yet I keep doing the stuff that I hate over and over and over again. It's like I'm tricking myself somehow. And it must be that at some level, what I really want to do is evil. Even though I really believe as I examine myself, as I look inwardly, I do want good. I keep proving that God is right and that sinful behavior leads to unhappiness. I have a a list of experiences and relationships and people that I truly and dearly love that I've hurt because I've been selfish. Yet I continue being selfish when the last thing, I would rather die than hurt those people. I continue to do it. How is that? It's like there's a monster living inside of me driving me to be bad. Am I even responsible for my behavior if I'm so deeply flawed and broken as a human being? I know I can't do anything good without God. I know that that's true. Yet I continue to try. I want to do good, but I never seem to be able to follow through consistently. How am I to change when I can't even make myself do what I know and believe is right? That's just a paraphrase of what he's just said there in in verses 15 through 20. And it's what theologians call law school. When you're in that state, right, where you're sitting there and you're like, you're just like Paul is right there. Why do I keep doing these things? Welcome to law school. The law has completed its work in you. And it has fulfilled its great purpose. When you come to that place, why can't I change? The law has done all that it can to bring you to the place that God wants you to be. You've been brought to the place where you finally, even if just for the moment, have recognized you can't be who God wants you to be without God. You were not made to be an independent operator. You were made to be deeply and personally connected to your creator and to your fellow man. Now, I know that stands against everything that our culture wants us to believe, that we're autonomous, that we are significant on our own, and that we you know, we are, are each and every one of us, a force to be reckoned with within itself. But that's not how we're designed. We're designed to need God and each other. We're designed to depend on one another, and when we operate as though we don't need God or each other, we are broken and incapable of being who it is that we were intended to be. You cannot be what God made you to be without God. You cannot be what you desire to be without god you can't even come close and that's the role of the law that's its purpose is to bring us to this place galatians 3:24 to 26 says therefore the law has come become our tutor to lead us to christ so that we may be justified by faith But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor, for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Do you understand this? The context is that we are studying what it means, how it is that we are freed from the power of sin in our lives. How do we become free from the power of sin? And Romans 7 answer to that is you come out from under the law. And we've been chewing that for two weeks now. But here it finally comes into focus because the law isn't designed to make you stop sinning. The law is designed to show you what sin is and to show you how far short you fall from God's standard of perfection and to lead you to personal surrender to the point where you can cry out, I am broken, Lord, and I need your help. I cannot do this on my own. And God's like, whew, finally. We can talk. You're ready to stop being God and instead be my child? Wow, there's a lot we can do now. The law will lead you to this critical crossroads being exposed to it studying it reading it understanding it will lead you to a place of brokenness where you will have to make a choice where you will stand the law will bring you to this crossroads right here and no further and the decision here is on the one hand you can quit or on the other hand you can surrender You're right which one do I win? Right? <laughs> no, there's no winning. There is quitting and there is surrendering. Well, what's the difference? Neither one sounds all that good. Well, the difference is huge. The difference is huge. When you quit, let's talk about quitting. There's two versions of quitting, okay? The first one is you just finally get to the point, and a lot of this happens, and you might, a lot of you might be in the process of quitting right now. And what I mean by that is you've come around, you've received Christ, you've been trying to walk with God, and yet you keep screwing it up, and you keep failing, and you're embarrassed, and you're starting to get, frankly, a little angry. At all these people, they're telling you that this is how you should live, and you know what right and wrong is, but you just don't believe that you can live that way anymore. That you're gonna fall short, and it's just, this whole thing is just not for you. And so maybe God's not real, and maybe. The whole Bible's not real, and maybe the reason I can't do any of this is because I'm not meant to, and it's, and it's not based on truth, and I should just go and live my own life my way and just forget about the Bible, forget about doing good or anything else, and just eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. That's a story that has visited this room many, many times. People have come and they have gone because they've been led to this place by the law of God to this crossroads and they have thrown up their hands and said, it's not worth it. I can't do it. And so back into the world I go. That's a choice that's always available to all of us. And God promises if we sincerely receive Christ, if we sincerely receive Christ, His gift of forgiveness through the cross that we are free to go back out into the world and choose self and choose the self-life. The problem with it, though, is that it denies the truth. You see, Christianity doesn't just work right? It's not just something where it's a philosophy and you put it together and, you know, some guys in the ancient world, you know, finally figured out, you know, some methods, you know, where you take these steps and then all of a sudden you change and your life gets better. It's not just that. It's the truth. There is a God and he is real and he loves you and he has spoken And he wants a relationship with you. And it is the very thing at the fundamental level of who you are that you were designed to be. There's a God-shaped hole right in the middle of your soul that only he can fill. And you can choose, you can use your free will to reject that at any point in time that you desire. But you will never be full if you do because you will be rejecting the fundamental question, the fundamental purpose that you were created for. And so yes, you are free to do this, but your conscience will be bothered the rest of your life. Knowing that you are living counter to the truth. It denies the true purpose of who you are and I mean, you want to get practical, and it only leads to more emptiness, more brokenness. You came to Christ to begin with because you realized the futility of your former way of life. And you think, and we think, and I think, at times when we become tempted to quit because we're fed up with our inability to succeed, we're fed up with all of our litanies of failures. And we think, you know, I'm just going to go and live for self. And by God's mercy, we've got to come back to that place where we realize that's the whole thing that I rejected to begin with when I came to Christ. Because I know, I know that doesn't work. It leads me into destroyed relationships, empty purpose, Loneliness and listlessness in this life. So it is a choice, but it's no kind of choice. The sin and the economy of diminishing returns is what awaits those who quit. The downward spiral into dissatisfaction and destruction with a constant nagging sense that I left behind the truth and the answer. That's one way to quit. There's another way, a far more diabolical way to quit, which is fake it. And this is what many choose. This is part of the whole problem with the perception of Christianity in our culture is that we have a whole lot of people that have been brought to that crossroads of the law. They've come to genuine faith in Christ. They've realized their need for God, called out to him, and then as they've tried to walk with God, they've realized they just can't do it. And they just fall short again and again, and they've realized, I've just set the standard too high. And what I need to do is fake it. And this is where the whole issue of religious hypocrisy comes in and why it's so easy to be disgusted with institutional Christianity because they have disabled the law of God and begun to believe the lie that they can live up to what God has created us to be on their own. And they do it through a sleight of hand. They say, I know in my heart that I can't continue to walk with God, that I am broken, and that I am ugly, and that I am incomplete. But nobody else knows that. And maybe I can fake it until I make it. Maybe if I act and pretend, and I convince myself that others will believe And maybe that'll be good enough. Or maybe if it's not good enough, eventually it'll become true. And so we emphasize things that we can avoid and we ignore the things that we can't. This is the whole problem with the institutional church. You know, we have issues in our culture where we look at Christianity and we say, you know, we go out into the street and we say to people, what's the the thing that defines Christianity? Christianity above all other things. And so many people say hypocrisy because so many Christians have decided to fake it. You know, we talked at the beginning in Romans 1 about the whole issue of homosexuality in our culture and the way that the Bible's teaching uh, deals with that particular issue. And part of the real problem our culture has with that issue is absolutely correct. And that problem is As they look at it and they say, well, why do these Christians say, you know, make such a big deal out of homosexuality being an issue and then they don't care about heterosexual sin. They don't care about divorce. They don't care about materialism. Why is the American church so obsessed with this one sin and so hypocritical in all these other areas? And I think that raises an excellent point. Because that's the way of the law. That's the way of the legalist. You pick the struggle that you're not connected with, that you don't particularly have yourself, and you say, this one matters. And the ones that I struggle with, well, they're little sins. they're They're not like this one over here. And when people who don't know Christ, and they don't know the Bible, and they don't understand the Bible's teaching, are confronted With that kind of hypocrisy, of course, they're disgusted. And the enemies of God applaud. Because we decide to fake it. We decide I'll rationalize my faults and I'll blame others. I'll make my life about outward appearances that I can control. And I'll hide what's in my heart. And as a result of that, I've got to keep people far away from me. Jesus reserved his most vitriolic, his most acidic commentary for religious types. They were called the Pharisees who decided to fake it. He specifically addresses this misappropriation of God's law and says things like this, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you travel around on sea and land to make one proselyte, and and when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. (laughs) Jesus, that's not nice. (laughs) For the lammy, Jesus... This is how he responds to people that decide to fake it. And he says, the problem is not just for you, that it drives you away, a wedge between you and your relationship with God, but you convince other people that they can fake it too. They look at you and they say, well, you can do it. So maybe I can do it. And then they try to do it, realize they can't. And they decide, well, he can do it, but I can't, but maybe I can fake it. It's called the leaven of the Pharisees. It permeates Entire communities, entire denominations of people. Genuine believers in God and in faith whose walk is shipwrecked because they refuse to let the law of God do its job. The law can't accomplish its job when we decide to fake it because what we do in faking it is we lower the bar of the law That's what the Pharisees were always doing. They would say things like Jesus would say, love your neighbor as yourself. And they would be like, well, who's my neighbor? Do you understand that? Why are they asking that question? Because they're saying, okay, where's the bar? Is the neighbor like the guy who lives next door? Is it on the left, the right, and across the street? Who's the neighbor? And so maybe I can can love that person as I love myself and I can keep the requirements of God's law. Jesus is so brilliant. He's so brilliant because what does he say? Your neighbor is the Samaritans, the people that, you know, the Jews hated more than anyone else and was the neighbor of their country, right? The same thing. We see them asking him questions. They're like, well, how many times should I forgive my neighbor when they sin against me? What's the bar? How do I get up over that bar, Jesus? How many times? Once, twice, three times? He says 70 times seven. Whoop, the bar goes right up there. Jesus refuses to let them jump over the bar. Matthew 5, 21, 22 is a classic example. He says, you have have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not commit murder. And whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. Right? Ten commandments, don't murder. You've heard Moses say, don't murder. So what does it mean to murder? What's the definition of murder? But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever says you fool shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Do You see what he did? Oh, you want to know what murder is? It not only includes your actions, it also includes your heart. If you hate someone in your heart, that's a violation of God's law. He raises the bar so that the law can do its job. It can bring us to the point where we say, well, there's no way I can live my whole life without ever calling someone a fool in my heart. There's no way I can ever not feel a flash of anger and hatred toward my brother. Jesus says, that's right. Because you're broken, you're fallen, and you have a sin nature, a carnal nature, and the only answer to that is surrender. You see, the problem with faking it is it destroys any authenticity you have. You become a terrible representation of God's true purpose. People look at you and they say, that's what God wants to do in my life is he wants to turn me into a hypocrite, a self-righteous judger of others, one who is constantly looking for others who are failing so that they can appear good in contrast. Is that what the God of the Bible is all about? No thanks. The problem with faking it is you're always pointing out the flaws of others in a constant moral shell game so that they won't see yours. You're keeping people at a distance. You cannot fake it and be close to anyone. Why? Because it is a thin veneer. It is a veil that will force you to keep other people away because when they get close, they will see that you are faking it. The problem with faking it is the people who are closest to you, your spouse and your children, will know that you are faking it and they will hate you and they will hate your religion because of you if you fake it. It's an incredible price to pay. You may not even know how miserable you are as you fake it because you think. I go to church. I do the right things. I I give money when they ask. I, you know, I try to be good. But where is your heart? The Lord looks at the heart. And when you continue to fake it, you deny the truth, the fundamental truth, that you need the power of God in your life. Wiersbe says on legalism, what really is legalism? It is the belief that I can become holy and please God by obeying laws. It is measuring spirituality by a list of do's and don'ts. The weakness of legalism is that it sees sins, plural, but not sin, the root of the trouble It judges by the outward and not the inward. Furthermore, the legalist fails to understand the real purpose of God's law and the relationship between law and grace. Quitting sucks. Don't quit. Surrender. That, while that doesn't sound all that attractive in and of itself, is amazing. That's what Paul Prescribes. That's what he describes finishing out this chapter. Is coming to that place of frustration, of realization, that I cannot do it, and letting go. I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who that does good. Let's just start with the truth. The truth of surrender starts with, I have evil within me. And yeah, I do want to do good, but that doesn't change the fact that there is deep, personal, real evil in my heart. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man. But I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death? Do you see what he's allowed the law to do? He's allowed the law to expose everything. He owns it completely. There's no shell game here. There's no blame shifting. There's only the truth that I know what's right, I want what's right, but at the end of the day, I am evil and broken and I can't do it. Oh, the freedom of that. The freedom of admitting that. The freedom of knowing that. I can't do it. Not minimalizing the problem. Well, if I had better people around me in my life, I'd be a much better person. And, you know, if my parents had treated me better, then I would be, I wouldn't have all the problems that I have. No pointing the finger at anyone else. No claiming to be a victim of circumstance. Only, simply, I am afflicted, broken, and incapable. Wretched man that I am. Who will set me free from this body of death? There is no way to fix myself on my own. I need a Savior. Salvation comes when we give up trying to be our own God. Romans 1 through 4 was about freedom from the penalty of sin. That's a one time decision. Sanctification is what Romans 5 through 8 is about. And it's a very churchy word, but it's talking about growing and spiritually and living your life on a path. We call it walking with God. That also comes as a free gift. The mechanism in which both work is the same, it is by surrender. With salvation, it's a one-time thing. You don't need to be continually saved. You turn to God and you say, I'm a sinner. I cannot do this on my own. I am broken and I am desperate and I need your forgiveness. Jesus, come into my life and you are saved at that point forward. A one-time decision. Sanctification, on the other hand, is a moment-by-moment surrender. Not just every day but every hour of every day, as you confront the different issues in your life and you decide which way am I going to go, what truths am I going to act on, and how am I, what is my walk with God going to look like, you will be again and again and again brought back to a place where you need to surrender. God, I need you. I can't do this on my own. We are forever saved by that one decision of faith, but we will only grow by ongoing, continual surrender. So he cries out, wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death? And then he gives the answer, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus will set me free from this body of death. Jesus has set me free from this body of death. We find the strength The motivation, the power, and the resolution of this inner conflict within ourselves, this great war of the flesh and the spirit clashing against one another, raging on, is resolved in the person of Jesus Christ when we come to a place of personal surrender. But it's not permanent. Why isn't it permanent? Because you will creep back and the law. Because once you are finally beaten down by the law to the place where you surrender and agree with God, you will find peace because of Jesus Christ. And that'll feel great. And you may have an hour or a day or two where you're really realizing how much you need God and you are able to depend on him moment by moment. And then the thought will come, I'm getting pretty good at this. Or maybe it won't. But the realization will come, I've got this. I can do this. I need to keep myself headed in the right direction. And now, all of a sudden, you're back on the road, headed to law school, Romans 7, for another thrashing. (laughs) As believers, we return here Again and again, to have our self-will dashed upon the rocks. And that's what I think Paul is talking about here. Verse 25 is very interesting. 24, wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death? Thanks be to Jesus Christ. So then, on the one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other, with my flesh, the law of sin. I remain in conflict. I find peace through surrender to Christ, but I remain in conflict. Why? Because I still have the flesh nature, I still have the spirit, and I'm a fallen human being, and the the idea of sanctification, walking with God, is a process, a lifelong process, and the only hope is to learn to return again and again to surrender to crying out to God wretched man that I am who will set me free from this body of death choose surrender choose God's way quitting and faking it only lead to extra lapse they only force us to repeat the mistakes Again and again. Not because God is angry and he punishes us and he toys with us like a kid with a magnifying glass and a hill of ants. No. But because as we continue on a broken path, doing broken things, we are broken. And by confronting and willing ourselves to do these things again and again and again, we are only brought back up against the law of God, which is only there to bring us to an end of ourselves. Real faith in God begins where faith in self ends. That's the power that frees us from the power of sin. And we're going to finish out in Romans eight, moving forward. Surrender. Surrender begins with salvation. Jesus put it this way, Matthew eleven twenty eight: Come to me, all you who are weary, heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. Come to me, Jesus says. Put down your weapon and come into my arms. Your weapon is your rebellion. Your weapon is your desire to be your own God. Put it down and come home and become what I created you to be, God says. That is surrender, and then that continues with daily surrender as we learn to walk and grow. Isaiah 46.4 says, even to your old age, God says, I will be the same. And even to your graying years, I will bear you. I have done it and I will carry you and I will bear you and I will deliver you. There is never any point where God takes the training wheels off and says you're on your own. All the way through life, as long as you have your sin nature, God is going to have to carry you and me and all of us, which is why we have to surrender. If you're thinking, I'm a legalist, I'm sitting here and I'm thinking about all the terrible things that you said about me and uh, what do I do? What do I do? How do I, where do I start? I've realized I've been faking it. Well, be honest. That's a great place. Be honest. We're all recovering legalists here. Okay? Because not just because we're from church backgrounds, the, the world system is a legalistic place. We live in a world that is based on earning what you get. And so we all have this legalistic bent. And if you're realizing that you've been a hypocrite and you've realized it's hurt your relationships with your neighbors and your spouse and your friends... Go back to them and say, I have been a hypocrite and I'm wrong and I'm sorry and I bet you I'm going to do it again. But I don't want to be this way anymore. Oh my God. Can you believe? Think about the legalists you've known. What if they said that to you? Right? What an amazing way to glorify God, to model repentance. I've been acting and pretending as though I've got it all together and let me tell you something, I don't. Who says that? Other than a grace-centered child of God. Embrace authenticity. Stop faking it. Let people in. Show them all the ugliness. We've seen it before. And realize that you are loved and that you are forgiven. Also, come back next week. <laughs> Romans 8, where we really get into and start talking practically about walking by grace. God, thanks for the opportunity uh, to study this stuff, to think about this. We are all, um, we are all prone to legalism. We are all um, regularly going back to that place where we're crying out, wretched man that I am. We just ask God that, um, if we are headed there now, that you could, we could just circumvent that whole process and just get right to the end part where we surrender. So, so many of us, God, linger so long in self, and uh, no one is the beneficiary of that except for your enemies. We ask God that if there's anyone here that doesn't know you, that they would hear your call in their heart that they would open wide the doors of their heart and receive you as as their Savior. And we ask that you'll help us to do some good in overturning the, the hypocrisy of the legalistic reputation that Christianity has in our country and help us to be authentic lovers and servers and givers of those who don't know you.